Dear Lord, you have promised to hear us when we come. We thank you for that. We thank you that you never put us on hold. The line's never busy. We never have to wait. We don't get some call forward. We get you. We thank you, Father, for hearing us, for listening to us. And, oh, God, give us the reciprocal grace of listening to you. May our praying not always be asking, but may it be also listening and receiving. We pray for many who are not here, some who are confined by illness, some very serious illness, others who are away because of sorrow, difficulties of one kind or another. God bless them and help them and encourage them. And all of these who are out today and who've been out and who are going, for mission outreach to other people, bless them and strengthen them and use their witness as a powerful instrument in your hand to bring healing and help and health to other people. Bless this time together, for we do pray together in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. I want to, uh, as you know, on the bulletin there, I'm preaching today on the Big Four and the series we're having on the Ten Commandments. First, uh, three commandments have to do with our relationship to God. You read that in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, also the 5th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And then the next two commandments have to do with relationships in the family of God and in the human family, about worship and honor father and mother. The next four that we come to today have to do with the relationship to society and to the world around us. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie. Now, all those commandments are not going to do a thing in the world to change people's lives. As Teresa said just a moment ago, we can say that to them from church and put it on billboards. That's good. You put it up in the classroom. That's fine. But if you leave out the first two verses of the 20th chapter of Exodus, you leave out the source of power for fulfilling the Ten Commandments. For the Ten Commandments are not rules for our behavior. The Ten Commandments are descriptions of the kind of behavior that will characterize our lives once we have a relationship with God. These commandments are not abstract principles detached from life. They are truths that get inculcated, incarnated in a person's life because of a relationship to a loving and seeking God. There's a great teacher was, he's now dead in Switzerland by the name of Pestalozzi. He was a teacher who took all of the kids that the schools declared as incorrigible, and he taught them, and he changed their lives. And when he died, hundreds attended his funeral. And the description of the man's teaching was this. He related to those kids at the point of their humanity and not at the point of their behavior. He had it right. You don't begin with behavior. 
You begin with our humanity. You begin with something happening to us. We were created in the image of God. And we are not totally human until we have a personal, living, vital, creative, loving relationship with our Creator. Life is fragmented without that relationship. Listen to the first two verses again. I have pointed this out in every sermon that uh, we've done in this series on the Ten Commandments. It is essential. You can't build a house without a foundation. And this is the foundation for the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words, as the, our Hebrew friends would say. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am a God who saw your difficulty, who saw your plight, who saw you living in slavery to a Pharaoh. Pharaoh could be the gang leader. Pharaoh could be drugs. Pharaoh can be work. Pharaoh can be anybody or anything that controls your life. And I brought you out of that servitude, out of that slavery. I emancipated you. Because I love you and I care for you and I created you for relationship with me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out. He didn't start talking to these Jewish individuals about their behavior. He began with a relationship with their humanity. Back up to the 19th chapter. The groundwork for this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Ron just sang it. He carried us. Now the Ten Commandments for the Christian... There's no problem with agreeing with the Ten Commandments. We ought not to murder. What it says is not thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt do no murder. There's a difference between murder and killing. All murder is killing. All killing is not murder. Even the Bible talks about that in self-defense, in defense of values that need to be perpetuated, in defense against the Hitlers of the world who would kill five to six million Jews and everybody else if, if left alone. The murder that the Bible talks about is planned, premeditated murder growing out of a heart of hatred. Well, for the Christian, we don't have any argument with that. We don't have any problem with the commandment that says, you will not commit adultery. We know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. Down deep inside, we know it's wrong. We know it's not what God intended for us to do in our relationship to our husband or to our wife. We're to be faithful. Stood here last night. Wonderful couple. Repeated their vows. For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. That's it. Till, love, till death us do part. It's a love relationship. And out of the love relationship, then all of the behavior is altered. I didn't talk to them about who's going to carry out the garbage. Or who's going to wash the dishes. Or who's going to mow the lawn? Martha does that sort of thing. You say, that's, that's a woman's work. Never done. She needs supervision and direction and counsel and guidance. That's our work, isn't it? 
It's a love relationship. That's the basis of it. We don't have any argument about the fact that it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie. Listen, have you ever noticed that all four of these work together? All four of these words, not murder, not be unfaithful, not steal, not lie. Oh, when you kill somebody, you've stolen their life. You've stolen the life of a father. Therefore, you've stolen something from his wife and from his children. When you're sexually unfaithful, you've stolen affection that rightfully belongs to someone else. And you may have murdered a relationship, yours or another's. You see, none of these commandments have to do with just things that we do. They all involve somebody else. They all involve somebody else. Every one of them. No man lives unto himself, no man dies unto himself, and no man sins unto himself. They, our sins, our disobedience, has consequences in the lives of other people. When you lie about somebody, you can murder their character. When you gossip about somebody, and there's one powerful book in the New Testament about that, the book of James. This ninth commandment may be the most broken of all the commandments by Christians. At one time or another, we all consider ourselves as amateur moralists, and we talk about other people. You can kill a character. You can destroy a home by gossip. See, all of these commandments tie together. You steal love. You steal a reputation. You steal a life. And there's some permanence about that that even with repentance cannot alter the consequences. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you are not a believer, if you don't believe in God, look at these four words, these four commandments, just logically, just look at them pragmatically. Look at them as, quote, a realist. Wouldn't life be better if we didn't kill each other? Wouldn't life be better if you didn't have to have an alarm system in your home? On your car? Wouldn't life be better if you didn't have to have insurance against theft? Wouldn't life be better if you knew your daughter or your wife or your sister not going to be raped? Forget God. Leave him out of the equation for a moment. And just look at it logically and pragmatically. Life would be better if we didn't kill each other, if we didn't betray our commitment to our spouse, if we didn't steal from other people, and if we didn't lie about other people. So the Word of God is true not only because God said it, God said it because it's true. Life is better. In every area of life, if we allow the consequences of our relationship to be expressed in our relationships to other people. I'll tell you two stories from the Bible that illustrate what I'm talking about. 
True stories that can be taken out of life. They can be taken out of events in our day and our time. They can be taken off of almost any front page in America. He was a powerful man. He happened to be king of Israel. But he was in a place of great authority. His name was Ahab. His wife was a bad number, Jezebel. There was a man that had a little family farm near Ahab's palace. His name was Naboth, and he had a little vineyard there that had been in his family for generations and generations. And King Ahab saw that attractive piece of property, and he said, Hey, Naboth, I want your property. What do you take for it? Well, I don't want to sell it. Been in my family, and I love it, and I've cared for it, and I grew up here. Oh, come on. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a better place than that. This is just near the palace, and it's something I want. And I'm the king. I'm the power structure in this community. I call the shots. I'm Mr. Big, and I want your property. Well, I, I don't want to sell it. Well, Ahab went back to the palace, and he started pouting. And his wife Jezebel said, Big boy, what's the matter? He said, Naboth won't sell me the vineyard. And she said, well, that's no problem. So we can get that worked out without any difficulty at all. So she got some of the leaders of the community together and said, let's declare a big holiday, a big religious holiday, and let's honor Naboth. And when we got him there, this is what we're going to do. And you can read about this if you would like to read it in the 21st chapter of 1 Kings, one of the history books of the Old Testament. I had this big religious festival going. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite Naboth and brought charges against him before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death, lied about him, stole his property, killed him. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And she went in and she touched the shoulder of old pouting Ahab. Said, hey, I got your garden for you. Go down there and get it. Oh, one. Where's God? Where's God when little people get stepped on? Where's God when injustice takes control? God had a preacher named Elijah, and he said, Elijah, I've got a job for you. I want you to go down to Naboth Vineyard. You know, you know about Naboth here in the Jezreel Valley, that beautiful, fertile valley. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. And say to him, this is what the Lord says. Preacher's not there representing some class struggle. He's there to represent God. A God of justice. Go down there and meet Ahab. And say to him, this is what the Lord says. 
Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Ahab's king of Israel, he knew the commandments. He just didn't know the commander. He knew the rules. He didn't know the ruler. Killed a man, stole his property. Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. God's got a case against you, Ahab. And Ahab said to Elijah, and I want you to notice his response. So you have found me my enemy. My enemy. The man who came to tell him the truth about himself. Enemy. The man who came as an emissary from God to reveal the heart of Ahab to Ahab. And he looked upon him as an enemy. Because of that unrepentant response, that hostile response to the voice and the word of God, Elijah responds saying, yes, I found you. If that's your response, God tells me to tell you, he's found you. And you're going to die. You're going to die. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel, murdered, stole, refused to respond to the Word of God. That's one story. I want to tell you another one, maybe more familiar to you. King David. King David's army was off fighting. David was lounging around the palace for some reason. If he'd been doing what he should have been doing, he wouldn't have gotten into trouble. And he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. And he decided that he wanted her. Well, he was the king. The divine right of kings. The divine right of power structures. The divine right of rulers to do what they want. Forget little people. I want her. He got her. Got her pregnant. She happened to be married to one of his choice elite corps called David 50. They'd been with him from the beginning. He'd never lost any of them in battle. They were the cream of the crop. And Uriah was one of them. And this was Uriah's wife. Came to David and said, I'm pregnant. Uriah's been gone. David said, I know what I'll do. I'll send for him to come home. So he got Uriah to come home and said, uh, how's it going with the troops, Uriah? Oh, fine, King David, fine. Well, I just wanted to report, kind of a first-hand report on everything that's happening. So they sat there and talked a while. They said, uh, why don't you stay for dinner, Uriah? Your Majesty, whatever you say. So he Bought a big meal and a lot of good wine. He got Uriah relaxed. It was getting late. And David said, uh, Uriah, late now. Why, why don't you just go on down and spend a night or two at home before you go back to the troops? Trying to get him back in bed with his wife. 
She was pregnant. He was trying to cover his dirty tracks. He said, no, Your Majesty, I, I couldn't do that. I need to get back to the troops. So he went back. Time went by a few more weeks, and he tried the same thing again. Got your right to come back from the front. Tell me again, uh, right how things are going out there. Well, they're going good. Going good. Morale of the troops? Fine, fine. Uh, oh, it's getting late. Why don't you stay and eat again? We'll have a good meal. So he fed him a lot of food, a lot of wine. Um, I know your wife would love to see you. Uh, why don't you go home? Don't go back until tomorrow. No, uh, thank you, King David, but I, I really, my, my place is with my, my men out there. I really need to get back. Frustrated King David, so he sent a note to the commander-in-chief out there in the field with him. The commander, he the commander-in-chief. Put Uriah up in the front line. Put him in a vulnerable spot. They followed his orders. Uriah got killed. Problem solved. Where's God? The Lord sent Nathan preaching to David, his pastor, prophet. And he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich, rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him, Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, stole it, and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger. Burned with anger. Burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die, deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. David said, notice the difference between David and Ahab. David said, not you found me, my enemy, not you're here to condemn me and to kill me. But, he said, six words that will change your life. 
if you've murdered, if you've committed adultery. The New Testament says if you've hated somebody in your heart, you've murdered them. Jesus said if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've coveted, you've stolen. Is there anybody here that is guiltless? By Jesus' definition of morality, anybody here? If you are, stand up. I'd like to meet Jesus. I have sinned against the Lord. Six words. That's the difference between David and Ahab. That's the difference between salvation and damnation. I have sinned against the Lord. He repented. Notice, the consequences of his act were not alleviated, but the guilt was removed. You kill somebody, you can repent all day long, you're not going to get their life back. You can say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, I did it in a fit of anger, I repent. Fine, God will forgive you of the guilt, but the life doesn't come back. Consequences remain. And we're men and women responsible for our consequences, for our actions. Don't kill anybody, don't hate anybody. Don't commit adultery, don't lust. Don't steal, don't covet. Don't lie, love. Wonderful, how can you do it? You can't do it. I can promise you, you can't do it without the presence of the living God in your heart and in your life. It is totally impossible. Self-help won't do it. This self needs some help. And yourself needs some help. Outside help, the grace and the love and the power and the Spirit of God within you and within me and within us to help us live out in practice what we believe in private. To love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. You can kill somebody. You can commit adultery. You can lie. You can steal. You've not committed the unpardonable sin. None of those separately or all of those together constitute the unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin is to reject the one who can pardon us for our sins. That's Jesus Christ. The unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus Christ, for he is the basis of our forgiveness. I have sinned against the Lord. And David became a man after God's own heart, the apple of his eye, because mighty and powerful as he was, he repented before God. Now one word about both Elijah and Nathan, courageous men who could have been killed for David and Ahab had the power, absolute authority, 
David could have ordered Nathan's death. If Jezebel ordered Naboth's death, I want to point out something about these prophets of God. They were not involved in some sort of class struggle. These men were committed to justice and to mercy and to walking with God. The high watermark in the Old Testament, ethically, you will read in the sixth chapter and the eighth verse of the book of Micah. A prophet who said, what does the Lord require of you and of me and of us? What does the Lord require but that we do justice, we love mercy, and we walk as a relationship. There's the humanity. We walk with our God.